Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a longtime friend. I think we just figured out it goes back to about 2008. Uh, and I'm talking about the Chief Executive Officer of Integral Ad Science, an old and dear friend, Lisa Uchneider. So welcome, Lisa. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on and great to see you. Great to see you. And uh, uh, this, this should be a lot of fun. So I want to cover a lot of ground as we always do and sort of do a little walk through your illustrious career. But I love the market positioning of integral ad science around making every impression count. And you have the benefit of real perspective on the rise of digital in our industry. And we'll talk about your tenure at Microsoft and Yahoo and Amazon, and of course, IAS, um, some of the leading players uh, in the field, of course. But I'd love to get your take on where integral ad science, I think has such a strong position in the market. And that's around the leveraging of data, but you also are very mindful of one of the most challenging issues our industry is facing, which is protection of data. Can you give us just the benefit of perspective? Uh, you've been in, at this game over 20 some odd years. Did you ever imagine we'd end up sort of where we are now? The good, the bad, the ugly, and the in-between? Yeah, so uh, uh, I don't even know where to start with that one, Matt. So I joined IES. I've had the good fortune of leading the company over the last almost three years. I can't believe it. I joined in early 2019 uh, at Integral Ad Science or IES. And IES, we're a leading global digital media quality company. And what I mean by that, for the folks who aren't familiar with IES, uh, we do a few really important things in the digital ecosystem. Uh, we verify digital inventory. So we verify, let's say, a Coke video ad is running on YouTube. We verify that that ad, the Coke ad was actually viewed. It was viewed by a human and not a bot. There was no fraudulent activity. And we also verify that the Coke ad ran adjacent to brand safe and brand suitable content. In addition to that, more recently, we rolled out contextual targeting solutions. And especially as the industry is shifting away from cookie-based to uh, cookie list solutions, uh, our context control solution has just seen phenomenal adoption rate. But getting back to over the past three years, there are a couple of noticeable uh, shifts I've seen in terms of what marketers and publishers really care about. Uh, we're all living in this pandemic. And I remember it vividly when IES, we went globally work from home. I remember the date, Matt, was uh, March 13th of 2020. And that's when we were in the 24 seven COVID news cycle. Remember that where it, it was a first for all of us. We had never experienced that uh, as a planet in our lifetime. And I also remember the 13th and the following week, marketers were scrambling. The ad agencies were scrambling. They didn't know how to operate and navigate a 24-7 COVID news cycle. Uh, many of the marketers paused all of their digital campaigns. They pulled back their campaigns. They reworked the messaging. And they really leaned into sophisticated 
contextual solutions, also sophisticated brand safety and brand suitability solutions. So if you think about that as the moment in time and then following that, all of the unprecedented events we've lived through, Black Lives Matter, uh, the US elections, the events January 6th on the Capitol, and marketers just given the plethora of user-generated content and how unpredictable the content is, I, it's just, it's been mind-boggling seeing the um, increased sort of interest and focus on brand safety, brand suitability. It's now at the CMO level. We're seeing more and more major marketers, some of our partners like Coke and Nestle, Verizon, GSK, it's a strategic imperative to protect the, their brand equity, their iconic brands, and that's why they're leaning into IAS. So we're going to go deeper on uh, IAS and deeper on your experience as a chief executive officer in the last two years, which has certainly been a unique time for all of us. But let's go back again. I want to just dig a little harder. You have perspective, Lisa. You've been at this a long time. The issues that we're dealing with now, none of this stuff happened overnight. It's been a long journey to get there and where brand safety is now atop the agenda, as you said, and I agree with you, of most CMOs today, not just in the US, but globally. It's an amazing journey where we have gone and relatively quickly. You'll remember Moore's Law used to be the barometer for the pace of change. Well, we're way past that now in terms of how quickly things change. Did you ever imagine then, or did it even occur to you as an agenda item? Let's go back to you know your tenure at Amazon in 2008 when you were launching their business uh, in our sector. Did you ever imagine then that we would be dealing with such complex issues? Did you see this coming? Could anybody have seen it coming? Because it's a real hornet's nest of issues. Uh, I agree, and uh, I couldn't, ever have imagined both as a human, right? Both personally, what we've all personally experienced over the last two years, but then also uh, within our digital industry. I never could have imagined this. But also when you think about how we're all working from home, living at home, we've done, we're doing everything at home, Matt, that there are a couple of really significant trends um, that have propelled this interest in brand safety and suitability. The first is, you know, usage and adoption of social platforms. It's way up. Everyone's at home. They're on social media. They're consuming it. They're posting. They're connecting. Because for the last almost two years, we haven't been out face-to-face -face socially. So increase of social platform adoption and then the second increase is connected TV, right? I know with my girls, they don't even know what the cord is or what TV is. It's all about stream content. And that's also seen a significant uptick as we're all doing everything from home. Everyone's watching stream content. And so with those two trends, and again, as marketers are looking for ways that they can shift more of their linear TV dollars over, but do it in safe places. That is also why they're leaning into brand suitability solutions. 
Great. NIAS really just incredibly well positioned for the times. That's right. We are. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Okay. So let's uh, turn the clock back a little bit. Um, as I recall, you were an English major at Bates, a great oh, we're, we're, we're going to turn the clock way back. A great yes. school. We're all the way back now. So were you interested in technology back then? Did it, did it come to you later in life? It came to me. So uh, I was an English grad. And then coming out of school, I was convinced that I would work in the not-for-profit. Okay. So in my 20s, I was in the Peace Corps. I got a master's in public policy at NYU. I started working for a large global relief organization in the city uh, called International Rescue Committee. I was writing grants. I was fundraising. Uh, I was touring things like refugee camps and former Yugoslavia. It was an incredible experience. But what I found um, when I was working there is that in many ways I was connecting better with the board of directors than I was with my peers or the actual work. And that's when uh, I realized, you know what, even though I'm very passionate about this organization, I'm not sure if working in the not-for-profit uh, is the right long-term career path for me. And so I started to explore uh, and I realized a couple of things that I'm very goal-driven uh, and that I'd be pretty good at sales and started to explore and meet with several tech companies I was lucky enough to get an interview with Microsoft. This was on the enterprise side of the business and they rejected me. And I received a good old fashioned rejection letter from Microsoft. I politely called up the recruiter the next day. This was an email. I called her on the phone, Matt. And I politely asked, uh, you know, I just got rejected. Thank you so much for that rejection. Uh, I'm sure I still have the letter somewhere in the house, but thank you for the rejection. I'd like another shot. Uh, so I'd like to understand why you rejected me and if you could give me another chance. And she said very politely, you did not demonstrate enough passion in the interview. And I paused because anyone who knows me knows I, I've got a lot of fire in the belly. And I, and I asked her, I said, okay, could I have another shot? Could I? And she said, well, there's this really junior entry-level position at MSN, an account manager job. It, you take a pay cut coming out of not-for-profit. Do you really want to interview for that? And I said, yes, I would. And I prepared for that interview. I interviewed with probably about five, six folks, but I, I just walked in there, like I wanna own the place, very prepared, fortunately got the job uh, and then spent 10 incredible years uh, at Microsoft. Great, great story. And when I think of you, Lisa, I always, one of the words that comes to mind for me, and we spent a fair bit of time together is humanity. I've always found you, even though you were all the way at the top uh, uh, in the corner office in the C-suite, if you will. I, I always thought you were like really real and, and there was a humanity. I, I can't think of, a, of another word. Does that go back to your parents? Does it go back to that early time that you spend in the not-for-profit sector? Great question. I do think that um, 
in ways it, it most likely comes from being one of nine kids. So I'm come from a large family, number eight out of nine. Uh, in many ways, you know, I was very self-sufficient when I was young and had to save my own money and set goals early and any of the extras I had to pay for. So I think it was that. And then I also think that the that experience at Microsoft and coming in at an entry level job and walking in the shoes. I mean, I've walked in the shoes when I look at my team today many of the roles on the team, I've done those jobs and I will never forget it. And there's nothing like it um, starting at that entry level. I think it's kept me grounded through the years. And then the other thing that uh, in hindsight, I just feel really lucky about is after all those years working for companies like Microsoft, Amazon, Yahoo, the IES is the first job where I'm based in the headquarters of New York City. So my first 20 years in technology, I was always based in the field to be closer to customers. But I also think that kept me very grounded, that I didn't work at headquarters. I, I lived on a lot of flights flying to the West Coast, but staying close to customers, finger on the pulse of the customer, ear to the ground with the teams, also, even in more senior roles, walking those sales floors and being a part of, of the team, that always kept me very grounded. It's a great answer. So you go from that entry-level job, and I love the story of how you picked up the phone and called the recruiter, uh, and you spent 10 years there. So I spent 10 years there. covered yep. a lot of ground rising to uh, GM of sales. Microsoft was, is still a big player was a really big player back then in very different ways. The company has evolved uh, in incredible ways. Um, I'm sure there'll be books written about that at some point, what the company was when it began to what it is today. Um, but that must have been an incredible journey for you. It was formative for me in terms of my own development as a leader, uh, some of the incredible mentors that I worked for, uh, that stretched me. Also, Microsoft, I remember, had some of the best training programs out there, and I took full advantage of those training programs. And, um, and the other thing, too, and I didn't realize this until I hopped to Amazon, is I learned so much about what it takes to build a scalable business, like real scale, um, with huge revenue targets and products that are launched globally. So I, I just loved my time at Microsoft and my experience there. I think our, our industry is, is pretty generous um, with uh, older folks helping out younger folks. Were there particular people that you look back, some early great minds who left an impression on you and who really helped advance your career, both personally and professionally? Sure. Uh, at Microsoft, there were a few. I'm sure you know a few, Joanne Bradford. So I worked for Joanne Bradford. Everyone in the industry knows Joanne. And um, she's just such a superstar in the industry, one of the best sales leaders I've ever uh, worked for or encountered. But I, I learned so much from her. Um, both personally and professionally. 
Um, and then there were a few other leaders at Microsoft outside of ad sales on the enterprise side uh, that I just learned so much again about building scalable, profitable businesses, um, driving change, impact and influence. Uh, and again, I've taken so many lessons from those leaders with me in future roles. Terrific. So uh, a phone call, an email, a message in a bottle comes, and all of a sudden you have an opportunity to go from Microsoft to Amazon. Uh, tell us about that journey. How did it happen? Yeah, sure. So it was actually a former sales rep of mine uh, who worked for me, who's still a dear friend. And she went over and she was consulting at Amazon and she called me and said, hey, they're, they're thinking about getting into the digital ad business. Uh, they've opened a global VP of sales role and you should take a look at this. And I loved Microsoft. I didn't want to leave Microsoft. And that's exactly what I said to her. I said, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I, I'm feeling good here. I'm on my 10 year where you get your sabbatical. And, and so she called me back like a week or two later and said, uh-huh, yep, yep. I'm, I'm introducing you to Amazon's executive recruiter. And so I spoke with the recruiter. We started having the conversation. Um, and I realized what I was looking for, what, what would in, motivate me to explore a new job were a few things. I had never built a, re, a global business. A lot of my work at Microsoft had been U.S.-based. So having the opportunity to build a global business from the ground up, uh, that was the first thing. Working for another tech company was uh, really, really important to me. And then also having the opportunity to disrupt. This was early days at Amazon. This was early before they were in original content. Their advertising business was tiny. Uh, and I thought it was interesting. Okay, going to an e-commerce platform and creating a new revenue stream for the company. So the other interesting twist of my story is by the second conversation with the recruiter, I found out I was expecting with our first child, six months. And so I held back and said, you know what? I, I think I'm going to stay at Microsoft. And again, they, they were very encouraging. Uh, I was the 26th candidate to interview for the job. I had 17 interviews, a couple in New York, the majority in Seattle, and I got the job. And so I joined Amazon, again, incredible run, very different experience from Microsoft, uh, but was there for six years, uh, really loved my experience there, um, and so proud of the business that we built. And the other thing I'm very proud of is many of the employees and leaders that I hired to help build the Amazon business, they're still there many years later. You know, it's, a, it's an incredible growth story. And uh, Amazon was a very big partner of ours at the advertising week that we just did uh, in New York at Hudson Yards, which was our first live event in 25 months in New York. That's uh, right. I ran into a few of them at Hudson Yards, uh, yeah. uh, the Amazon folks. And what was... Uh, uh, Interesting to me, you know, there are some things that are interesting to a, a small audience 
And uh, almost none of the folks that we are involved with who were absolutely wonderful to work with um, had any idea that we had done the, what was really, I guess, supported your first launch of the advertising I remember. business, which we did. Remember that at Grand Central Terminal? We I totally movie. remember it. Yep. And now it came around again, you know, sort of uh, in, in, Full a circle. in a different way. Absolutely. So you referenced it, but Amazon at that time was a very small player in our industry. Um, and you went out and built not only an organization that tackled and took on America, but took on the world. Um, how did you know how to build something like that? There was no playbook that was handed to you. You were building something from scratch that had to be That's really correct. exciting and you had to be filled. Your days must have been filled with things that were being done for the first mm -hmm. time at the company and that you were doing for the first time. Yeah, so when I joined, um, that's absolutely right. The advertising business uh, was nascent. Uh, there was not much there. I remember my first day on the job. Uh, it was it was the days when Amazon couldn't even call them Amazons in New York because of tax reasons. So a friend called me and said, "Hey, they're they're called at Zinnia, and just know that going to the office." So the office was above the Gray Bar Building. There were eight sales reps and me, that's it, in the Gray Bar building. And we started from scratch. And we, what I did know is a couple of things. We had to put together a plan, right? What is this blueprint going to look like? How is it differentiated given uh, Amazon's assets and that they're an e-commerce platform and advertising on an e-commerce platform is very different. But then the other thing I knew is I had to build a team very, very quickly. And I had, it was important I find leaders out there who were comfortable with ambiguity, were comfortable, who were running teams elsewhere and who would come on board as individual contributors. That was quite a sales pitch. Can you imagine going to sales leaders running teams of 30, 50, 75 employees saying, hey, come over to Amazon and be an individual contributor. And so it was a lot of selling and getting the right folks on board who are builders at heart, who are comfortable with ambiguity. Uh, you know, even when I would meet with candidates, I do the little test of, hey, there's a whiteboard if I hand you a marker and directionally, where do you think we should take this? And not everyone will grab that marker out of your hand, right? run to a whiteboard and start building out a blueprint. And so those were uh, the types of leaders and talent and athletes that I looked for, was looking for. And uh, fortunately, we were able to find enough of those athletes to join the company and help build the business. It's an amazing story. I think the first folks we spoke to, remember Kevin Klein? I think he was our- Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I love Kevin. I still speak to him from time to time. Kevin's great. Yeah, yep. wonderful guy. Uh, so you have this terrific run there, and then you go to another big player and have another terrific run where uh, we had the privilege of working with you and your team, including Julie, uh, and that was at Yahoo. 
Yeah, so uh, after six great years at Amazon, if you add up the six at Amazon, 10 at Microsoft, that's 16 years of flying to Seattle. And so that's when I realized, okay, with my family, we are either going to move to Seattle or I'm going to, I want to figure out where's the next opportunity where I can make an impact and really stretch myself. And I never considered Yahoo. Uh, Yahoo, I had competed with Yahoo for years. I am a builder at heart, right? And it was clear with Yahoo, it was more of a rebuild. Uh, that introduction came through a recruiter who called me. And uh, I remember it was a late night conversation. And she said, hey, you know, Marissa Meyer is looking and she needs a few things. She has 700 employees in New York. She needs a leader in New York. She's looking for someone well-networked with the CMOs and the heads of ad agencies. And the third thing is she needs someone who can partner well with her. And so on that one, again, it's a little bit of a trend, man. On that conversation, I said, thank you so much. You know, and I, I was very polite. I said, thanks, but no thanks. You know, I, I'm going to go look for something else. And I remember going to bed that night and I woke up the next morning saying, wait a minute. You don't want to move to the West Coast. You want to make an impact. You want to stretch yourself. And here is an opportunity to do something different and to rebuild a business headquartered in or based in New York, the job was in New York. And don't, you know, don't have that knee jerk reaction of no. So I called the recruiter back and I said, okay, I'd like to meet with Marissa. And so met with Marissa. And I remember that summer, we spent the summer talking, the whole summer, calls, we'd meet. And uh, by the fall, it was clear to me, those three things she was looking for, I felt like I could help. I could help her. I could help the company. Uh, I could help with her vision. And so I joined uh, Yahoo. And uh, the, the thing I said to her, though, when I look back, I can't believe I said this. I said, I'm, I'm happy to join, but is it okay if I just focus on America's for the first year? Because I've been traveling globally for six. And let's see if I can make it happen that first year. And after that, let's talk global CRO role. She's like, yeah. But after the first eight months, she called me and she said, okay, you're a global CRO now and go get on a plane and now you're going to travel globally. So Marissa's tenure is viewed in an interesting way. Um, you work really close with her. And my experience with her uh, was all really positive. We did some great, great stuff during your tenure there. And Yahoo has been, you know, part of our family through a lot of regime changes, certainly going back to the beginning when it was Terry Semmel and, you know, that whole uh, regime, Dan Rosenzweig and Greg and, and others. And I think similarly to Amazon, and you referenced this, where you produced a lot of talent that's still there or an equal measure of success has gone on to other places and enjoyed success. And I've always viewed Yahoo as one of sort of the great farm systems of talent that our industry has ever produced. That's Reflecting right. Reflecting now, it's all these years later, um, was the criticism of Marissa, was it fair, unfair? Um, I thought she didn't get credit for a lot of things that she did really well. But what, what would be your take, just top line, this is not uh, page six in the New York Post, 
But do you think over time history will be kinder to her tenure uh, at Yahoo? I um, so I had a very positive experience with Marissa. Uh, what I found with Marissa, everything came down to trust and building a trusting relationship with her, which I I think I did. Uh, the other thing I learned uh, with Marissa that I now apply as a leader is she acknowledges that everyone gets to the finish line differently. But the important thing is you get to the finish line, right? And she was very skilled at identifying who had which strengths, figuring out ways that the strengths could complement each other on a leadership team. And I also think that the company that she inherited, she left it in a much better place in the end. She really did. And the fact that uh, she was able to land that sale to Verizon, um, deliver it. Uh, again, I applaud her for her efforts and for the transformation of Yahoo uh, that she made happen. Yeah, and no, I think you're right. And I was very glad with the more recent transactions and the move of Yahoo from of the Verizon family to private equity. I was glad that they brought the brand back in a big way because I think it's it has always had a little bit of a halo. You know, that's, that's, that's right. not something you can acquire. You know, I've you know nobody loves you know Con Edison. You know, no matter what they do, you know, there's no halo there. But Yahoo, I think, has sort of always had a halo. Right, I totally agree. And even, you know, when I run into friends who were at Yahoo in the past, they still say, I bleed purple. The yeah. loyalty to the brand, the loyalty to the company. Um, you know, there are a lot of dear friendships that were formed at Yahoo and it, it did play a really important role in the fabric of the digital industry. So one of my theories, and I, and I don't know if this is a, a good theory or a bad theory, but I remember we uh, got the ANA board to meet on the West Coast concurrent with Yahoo's program at Pebble Beach. And Jerry Yang was a big golfer, a minority owner of the Pebble Beach company. And I said, oh, we have this board meeting. And, um, you know, it's about, you know, it was, uh, Jim Stengel was there, it was pre-Mark Pritchard and, you know, a, yeah. a, a group of heavyweights. I said, you really should come to this. And uh, they weren't, they weren't going to come. And I had gotten Peter Uberoth, who I knew from my early career in sports, to agree to come on behalf of the Pebble Beach company. He's actually one of the majority owners of Pebble Beach. And I said, listen, Peter Uberoth's coming, you have to come. And I always felt that the Silicon Valley companies, many led and founded by engineers, were always a little uncomfortable as marketers. Do you think there's any validity to that little theory? Uh, I do. I do. So it's a relationship business. It still is today. The way... The East Coast operates is very different from the West Coast, very different, two very different cultures. And um, I think over time, and my own experience having worked at some of the greatest global tech companies out there, I think there's now a greater appreciation for marketing. I think the fact that 
Digital advertising, I mean, how much is it projected at? 500 billion in two years. It's a significant business with great margins. And the tech companies, they appreciate that. And then also, I think that uh, the tech leaders recognize the importance of cultivating relationships with the major marketers. I've seen that in my tenure over the 20 years, like greater appreciation. Yeah, so an evolution over time. An evolution over time, that's yeah, right. I think that's a good take. Um, so if you're on the outside looking in at your trajectory between Microsoft and Amazon and your global job at Yahoo, one would say, okay, she's ready to be a CEO. And lo and behold, that happened. Tell us about that next journey and I think you had a little time off in between, as I recall, but tell That's us right. how you got to IAS. Yeah, happy to share that. So I took uh, help with the Yahoo sale to Verizon. I like to say I took an epic year off. My goal was to not get on a plane um, and then started to so spend time with my family and then started to explore what I want to do next. And I, I knew I wanted to run something, started looking at COO and CEO roles. But what I realized when I started reaching out to my network in the industry and my friends, what I realized was if I really wanted to pursue a CEO role, there were a couple of things. It was important to find CROs who have become CEOs and spend some time with them. So like a Michael Barrett, right? Or Greg Coleman, who grew up in sales, but they figured out a way to be successful CEOs. So spend some time with some folks like that. And then the second thing I realized was with my networking, make sure I expand beyond the network that I have for 20 years in sales. So what I started to do is I started networking with VCs. I started meeting with founders, um, uh, private equity, like a whole new Rolodex, whole new contact base, um, just exploring what was out there, uh, what would be of interest. Did I want to look at something outside of advertising or stay in advertising? So did exploration and I, I loved every minute of it. I loved meeting new people. I loved learning about all of these amazing companies that entrepreneurs were building. Um, and I did on, on this job with IES, uh, I got a call from a recruiter who walked me through it. And Vista Equity had, the private equity firm, had acquired IES the summer before I joined. So also learned a bit about Vista Equity and had never really considered a PE-backed company. But did my diligence on Vista, they have been incredible partners. Uh, and then did my diligence on IES. And what became clear is when I took a look at IES, 10-year-old company, verification ripe for disruption, very sticky business, high, you know, organic top line revenue growth. Uh, back then, it was probably about 500 employees or so. But the company was very much uh, operating like a startup. 
everything in everyone's head, no documentation, very minimal processes, running on legacy systems. So when I really got under the hood at IES, I realized all of my experience over the last 20 years in understanding what it takes to build scalable, profitable businesses, I realized my skill set was perfect for an IES because the IES needed transformation of, of the company to set it up for real scale. The other thing too is, you know, one of my litmus is, is the company ready to handle a global Nestle, a global Procter & Gamble? Because of my experience, I knew what that took to be able to handle a marketer of that size, running across dozens of international markets, launching global repeatable products. So took the job, got the offer, took the job, uh, and over the last three years could not be prouder of our transformation of the company, of all of the incredible work our team has done, overhauled everything, tech infrastructure, product, go to market, you name it, overhauled the whole thing, the whole house. Um, and this year, this summer, took the company public, which was another great milestone and amazing experience. Which, uh, not that you're going anywhere anytime soon, but that's a whole nother skill set that sets you up for the future. That's a very different path to lead. Yeah, a public CEO. But you know what's funny about that, Matt, is, uh, again, you don't realize it sometimes when you're living in it. Yahoo, I was a Section 16 officer, right? So CRO, public officer, $5 billion business. My team was 3,000 employees. So during my experience at Yahoo, I didn't realize I was already developing muscles and skill that could be applied to a public CEO position. Also, I'm very, very comfortable with quarterly revenue targets, hitting the revenue target. I mean, I've been you know, running global sales teams for a long time. So very comfortable with uh, the revenue side and the target side. Great, yeah, I guess it was inadvertent training for the future that uh, uh, bore itself out. Interesting. That's right. So talk about the growth of the company. It's been about three years, two of which were during uh, this pandemic. Um, yep. But talk about IES today relative to where it was when you started on day one. Yeah, so IES today, um, like I said, we really transformed the company top to bottom. So moved all of the legacy systems to the cloud. Uh, so we're a cloud-based platform. Overhaul the product roadmap. Very, I'm a big believer. Have a few priorities, few products you want to invest in. Launch those products. We're investing in areas like. Uh, contextual targeting in programmatic that has been a big growth driver. Almost half of our revenue is programmatic. Uh, building brand safety solutions within the live feed of social platforms. We recently launched a product. TikTok was the first platform, social platform to raise their hand and say, we want brand safety within our live feed. That is something that's in high demand for the marketers. So we built a product that does just that. Connected TV, again, I'd like to say it's the not even the first inning of a long game, it's the first pitch. 
so much opportunity with Connected TV. We recently acquired a company called Publica, uh, which is a leading CTV platform, heavy on the publisher sell side. Uh, and we're doing some really interesting things, leveraging our assets with Publica's assets. And then also continuing to expand internationally. And our international footprint is really strong. Revenue splits about 60-40, so 40% of our revenue is based outside the US, growing faster than the US. And when you think about those global marketers, international presence is everything. And being able to verify their digital inventory wherever they wanna run it in any market, it's just really important. Great. So you, you just touched on it, but let's dig a little deeper if we can on some of the areas where IAS is playing, not only playing, but really leading. We always have that old expression, content is, is king, but you could argue today that context is king and you referenced it. But Lisa, can we go a little deeper on what IAS is doing um, to enhance context control for both advertisers and publishers, and not just in the US, but globally? Sure. So um, since I joined IES, we've made three acquisitions, strategic acquisitions. And a winning, a winning formula we've seen with our acquisitions is we partner with the company before we buy them. And the reason I like that is for a couple of reasons. You can get under the hood, right? You get deep on the product and tech, get a good feel for the caliber of the engineers, uh, the leadership team. Uh, and then if, if their tech complements our tech and it makes sense to acquire the company, we do just that. So end of 2019, my first year at IES, we acquired a company called Atmantics. It's based in Modena, Italy. It is a contextual intelligence technology. So what I mean by that is the technology reads the page like a human crawls the page of the web and read it like a human. And so the tech can classify the content based on semantic of the page and the emotion of the content. So we have technology that can classify content based on love or hate, for example. Our tech can classify hate speech. That is a big differentiator for our tech. So we acquired the company, and in five short months, we integrated the tech into our tech stack. We built out hundreds of contextual segments, embedded them in the DSPs, and launched our context control product March of 2020, the height of COVID. The Trade Desk was one of the first DSPs we launched with. And that's when the marketers were scrambling, looking for sophisticated solutions, not to block all COVID news, but to know which COVID news they didn't wanna run a brand adjacent to, and for example, and what COVID news they were comfortable running their brands adjacent to. Since launching that product in March of 2020, it has just taken off. The adoption has been incredible. In second quarter represented 30% of our programmatic revenue, uh, third quarter 36%, and again, to your point, context is king. Marketers, again, they're looking for sophisticated ways uh, to get their brands out there and do it in environments that are safe for their brands. It's a great story. 
you're also doing work that's really transforming the management of campaigns. Uh, and I read recently about uh, a partnership um, with Media Ocean. Can you talk about what IAS is doing there to transform campaign management? Because I think it's a really interesting area. Yeah, so the other thing we're doing, Media Ocean is an example. Another example is work we're doing with Google and the Google Auto Tag is that the life cycle of the campaign automate it and make it seamless wherever possible on the for the touch points for the marketer. Um, so with a push of a button, for example, Google auto tag, it, it automatically wraps the tags of the campaign so that we're able to verify the campaign. And Media Ocean, it through the life cycle of the campaign to point of billing, uh, it's helping us uh, with that end-to-end -end solution. So automation is really important, making sure it's a seamless interface and a seamless experience. Absolutely fantastic. So let's talk about uh, perspective of the last two years. Um, you've been uh, running a global company from your living room, den, kitchen, wherever you may be sitting. Um, talk about what has worked better than you thought and some of the challenges that you've had. I know I've had, you know, days when it's hard to be up and, you know, part of your job, part of my job is to be sort of, you know, captain of the football team. You've got to be up and be motivated and keep everybody else motivated. That's a little harder to do when you're having trouble. Um, talk about how you've kept yourself going, how you've kept the company going, what's worked better than you thought, and what's been most challenging for you. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, so we've been working from home, or I've been working from home for 20, 21 months. And uh, it's a global, IS is a global organization. And a few things that have worked well, ironically, is in many ways, this world of Zoom, we live on Zoom. You know, I'm a firm believer. I like to say everyone has a seat at the table, the front row seat. And it's unified our company because it doesn't matter your title, your function, your time zone. So since March of 2020, I've hosted a live global town hall every single week for the company. Every Thursday morning, we all get on a live global town hall. We put our hats on. I don't have my IS hat. I can get it it's in my bag. But we've been wearing our hats on, Matt, for 22 months together. And it's been a tremendous rally cry, a unifier it has brought the company together, um, and and it was fun because last night we had our a small holiday party in in the New York in New York, and I was meeting employees who joined the company twenty months ago that I've never met in person, right? And um, just having that experience together that we're living through this together. And then being able to connect in person um, is really powerful. So being in it together, being hats on, uh, changing the way uh, we were connecting as a leadership team. So the first probably good six to 12 months, we were doing morning standups every single morning, 
every single morning, eight, eight or 8.30 in the morning, hats on as a leadership team, even for 15 minutes. Because you know, if you show up together and you have that game plan together, also breaking the goals down into bite sizes, celebrating the wins, bite sizes, and just getting through it together. So that has been tremendous uh, on the personal front. You know, throughout my career, I've spent so much time traveling and being able to run downstairs, have dinner with my family. We have two young girls, uh, have breakfast with them, see them off to school. Game changing. They come into the office after school. They visit. Uh, That has been a silver lining. And it's something I always look for are the silver linings throughout this experience um, because that has definitely kept me going. Yeah. And, and, and what are your thoughts for next year? Are you going to bring people back? Um, my view is this Zoom world has worked way better than I think anybody could have imagined. And I think culturally, I understand and agree with uh, much of what you said about bringing people together in sort of an equalizer. You know, everybody's just a box on the screen, irrespective of title. But I think the serendipity that happens when people are in person um, is a big thing that we've been missing out on. And I'm, I'm not sure that a lot of the younger people who are for us really appreciate that as much as they can or should. I think a lot of folks are very comfortable at home and say, oh, I'll work like this forever. I don't think that's a good idea. I think flexible is a good idea. Um, I think uh, the balance that this is allowed to create is a great idea, but I think the serendipity and what happens of in person um, has been a loss for us. What's your yeah, take on that? Yeah. And are you planning to go back and bring people back in at all, or, or uh, have you not yet made a decision in that regard? Yeah, so we will. Um, we do plan on going hybrid. Uh, Our New York office has been open this fall, so I've been going in several days a week. Um, And but we will go hybrid starting in January, where employees come in two to three days a week. Uh, They figure out the schedule with their managers. Uh, We're also looking at, in terms of our office space, create more space for collaboration. So it will be less of you show up, you have your desk, the same desk every day. I think, at least for us, it's uh, those days I think are behind us. I think it's more of hybrid world, um, encouraging employees to come in. Uh, I think there'll be more sort of project-based, team-based uh, when they're coming in. And I completely agree with you. I think it's very important for employees to connect in person Um, for lots of reasons, but also I've seen many employees who we've hired so many employees. It's their first time job out of college. They haven't met their peers in person. They haven't met their manager in person. Many of them are working, you know, in a studio in the middle of the city or Brooklyn. Uh, And I think it is really important that they come into the office a few days a week uh, to connect socially and personally with the team. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. All right, so if we do this again in a year, from a business vantage point, 
what do you think will be topic number one or agenda item number one? Is it around the connected TV space or is it something else? Uh, I think it will be disruption connected TV. That's first. I think uh, what I call cracking the code in the live feed of social platforms. So creating innovative, differentiated brand safety solutions within the live feed, TikTok, Twitter, uh, Facebook or Meta, trying to use Meta. Meta just publicly announced that they plan to open up their live news feed uh, to some brand suitability partners. Uh, and I applaud them for doing it because it's something marketers have been asking for for a long time. So I would say those would be the top two topics, connected TV and social platforms. Fantastic. Well, Lisa, this was such a, a joy to catch up with you and to hear a lot of things I didn't know. Um, it's an incredible story and a wonderful career that you're very much in the midst of. Um, and I can't wait to watch your tenure continue to unfold at IAS. You're doing incredible work. Uh, we've been lucky enough to get to partner and have you on the thought leadership stage with many of your colleagues over the years and look forward to that in the future. And uh, uh, I think you can do anything you want, young lady. You have a tremendous skill set and a magic to you um, that touches everyone in your sphere. And uh, I would not be surprised in the least if, you know, three or five years from now, I read that you were becoming CEO of, you know, the biggest company in the world, because I think you have that in you, whoever, whoever the biggest company in the world may be in three to five years. I certainly think you have that in you. And I can't thank you enough for joining us today. Yeah, thank you again, Matt. Uh, it was a pleasure to spend time with you. Thank you for giving the, the opportunity uh, to share my story. And also want to thank you for your friendship over the years and your support. Uh, and looking forward to our conversation a year from now.